Welcome back. One of the topics that I wanted to cover while we were talking about nephrolithiasis is straining the urine. Now, here's probably a perfect example of my rapid cycling personality. I can go from namaste to anger and back in half a minute, but here's my lash out moment. Strain the damn urine. If we don't know what kind of stone the patient has, it's going to be harder to prevent them and understand what caused them in the first place. That's not to say that we can't do other metabolic workup, but if we know that it's a uric acid stone or a calcium oxalate stone, it really, really is helpful. Okay, now for my namaste moment. My listeners are always trying to improve their practice and all of our previous mistakes are forgiven, even if you're one of those who I pick up the patient and you never strain the urine. <laughs> now, namaste away from me until I've had my coffee. Stone analysis is actually very cheap. So all those practitioners out there who constantly get a CBC and comprehensive metabolic panel on every patient in the hospital every day for almost no reason, that's a huge waste of money. A stone analysis, actually pretty cheap, tells you a lot. It's probably too early in an episode to be going off on a tangent, but I was just thinking... My friends, and particularly my social media friends, who I haven't seen in a while, who are really into yoga, they put up all these peaceful poses of them doing yoga on beaches, and they look really good, I, and I don't mind looking at them, but most of those people are among the craziest people I have ever met in my life. My wife excluded. She is super into hot yoga for about the past 15 years, and honey, whenever you lose your temper, totally justified. Thank God she never listens to this podcast. In fact, I am 90% certain she has no idea that I even have a podcast. I remember telling her many years ago that I was doing one, and she kind of looked at me and said, okay, and then never asked another question about it again, and I have never recorded it while she is in the house, so she's at work today. But nevertheless, I I'm probably best off not talking about yoga and craziness since that is one of her big passions. So maybe I won't go off on a tangent on this. Let me just say... Namaste. The divine in me honors the divine in you. But an important clinical principle is that obtaining a stone analysis at least once, I probably don't need it more than once, but at least once, is really important, I think, to really know what you're dealing with. Other things certainly may be worthwhile. I think it's very reasonable to get a parathyroid hormone level as part of an initial evaluation for stones, so you can rule out hyperparathyroidism. But some of the other things, um, you know, a little bit more controversial. I think 24-hour urines are a bit tough to analyze if it's just one urine because it can differ a lot between two different urine analysis when you're looking at calcium and oxalate and uric acid and citrate because it can vary with the diet and the day. Though I do want to stress that urinary analysis can be very helpful. So I've had some patients who are in my clinic now who are put on potassium citrate for recurrent calcium stones because they were found to have low urinary citrate and they have not had recurrence of stones. Now, potassium citrate can also be used to raise urinary pH to an optimal level in patients with uric acid and cysteine stones and is clearly used for that reason and it benefits a lot of those patients as well. But strain the urine, get a stone analysis. Yes, we do need to get other blood tests and particularly we're looking for high uric acid. We're looking at the calcium. Is there some kind of hypercalcemia 
like a hyperparathyroidism or other bone disease going on. And then we are also looking at the patient's general dietary risk factors as well as underlying medical conditions. So there's a lot of medical conditions that increase the risk of stones. But one of them that I am usually looking for is a urinalysis, particularly for proteus species. So I'm looking for urea splitting organisms on a urine culture, but you can also look at the urine pH. So if it's greater than seven, you probably have a urea splitting organism such as proteus, which then raises the possibility of struvite stones. I believe I got into that a little bit in my urinalysis lecture. If you do figure out what's causing the stone, there's a lot of dietary changes, sometimes medicines that you will try if you know what kind of stone it is. So for example, if you know a patient has a calcium stone, one of the things that we recommend is significantly lowering the dietary sodium. Now, dietary sodium and a bunch of other issues like heart failure, I think, in my opinion, has some controversy if the patient's constantly coming in with hyponatremia, which I see all the time, and then everybody still tells them to stay on a low-salt diet, which I just don't get. But anyway, that aside, dietary salt is linked to urinary calcium excretion, and in particular, when you follow a lower salt diet and at the same time take in adequate amount of calcium and lower your animal protein consumption, that has been shown to reduce urinary calcium excretion in hypercalciuric stone formers. That study dates back to 2002 in the New England Journal of Medicine where the title of that study was a comparison of two diets for the prevention of recurrent stones in idiopathic hypercalciuria. And then there's just the general stuff that you should do with your diet, particularly fluid intake. So the data, pretty good, not perfect, that 2.5 liters of urine a day is needed to help prevent the recurrence of stones. So having that higher fluid intake, significantly higher, to produce that 2.5 liters of urine. But Cochrane reviews, which gather and summarize the best evidence from research to help us make more informed decisions, makes the point that high fluid intake for the primary and secondary prevention of urinary stones really hasn't been well proven. Though I think it's well accepted, even though it's not well proven, which doesn't mean it's totally right, but it kind of makes sense if you think about it. And I should also state that the American Urological Association, when they looked at the studies about this, feel that the data is fairly good, meaning they give it a grade B that clinicians should recommend to all stone formers a fluid intake that will achieve a urine volume of at least 2.5 liters, and that is part of my practice. Now, you have to be careful about what you're doing to achieve that fluid intake. So it also has been shown that sugar-sweetened drinks do not help you. In fact, they hurt you. So cola products. I mean, who drinks cola products anymore? I guess if we're really trying to stop obesity, maybe the cocaine should go back into Coca-Cola. That's a joke. But cola products have been associated with a significantly higher risk, as have sugar-sweetened non-cola products. So fruit punch, no better. However, for some of us that like other types of beverages, there has been some prospective studies 
that have shown that beer, wine, coffee, and even orange juice, I know orange juice has sugar in it, but those are the four that tend to lower the likelihood of stone formation. So why are citrus beverages like orange juice and lemonade for that matter thought to help block stone formation? Well, the answer is basically in the question about citrus. So it's the increased levels of citrate in the urine and that causes decreased urine acidity, which reduces the risk of kidney stones. That being said, there may be something to orange juice which is different than other things like lemonade. In fact, it's been compared where they've looked at orange juice and lemonade, and lemonade simply was not as good as orange juice despite similar citrate levels. And this is small study stuff. That result was from the Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. But there is a thought that these juices are different and people get into the potassium ions and protons that are different between lemonade and grapefruit juice and orange juice. So, so far it looks like orange juice is the leader if fruit juice is your thing. So when life gives you lemons, still drink orange juice. And then for those of you who find orange juice to be Funny tasting unless vodka is in it, maybe that's still okay. Moderation, moderation. Don't be one of those people who when your liver sees that you're drinking water, it's surprised. Now, what do we advise about calcium? So it used to be the thinking that since the majority of stones contain calcium, and particularly calcium oxalate is the most common stone, that we would tell people to reduce calcium. But of course, as we all know now, that was totally wrong, and it's been shown not in the best studies, but these are observational studies that are shown over and over and over and over again to show the same thing, that reducing calcium in the diet is a bad idea, even if you make calcium stones. I mean, I guess if your diet is huge in calcium, you can reduce it, but the point was that you should have about a gram, so somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 milligrams a day of calcium. So what happens if you really cut back on calcium in the diet? Well, it turns out that if your calcium intake drops too much, there's insufficient calcium to bind to dietary oxalate that's in your gut. You eat both, the calcium and the oxalate, and therefore you increase the oxalate absorption and then what happens? Well, that oxalate is excreted into the urine and you have a pretty high risk for getting calcium oxalate stones. Now, you may be saying, all right, that's fine for calcium oxalate stones. What about for other stones? And the guidelines actually acknowledge that while this calcium low intake can be associated with calcium oxalate stones, they're not totally sure if that applies to all kinds of stones. But again, calcium oxalate being as prevalent as it is, that makes sense for the overwhelming majority of people that get stones. But again, that stone analysis, if you're making uric acid stones or struvite stones, maybe we're not gonna sit there and spend a lot of time in clinic or in the hospital or the ER or wherever talking about calcium if we know it's not a calcium stone particularly a calcium oxalate stone. Now, let's say you do know that it's a cysteine stone. You may be spending more time saying limit the sodium and animal protein intake and fluid for that matter. I mean, with cysteine 
it's pretty certain that the cysteine concentration is really important. So a high fluid intake will decrease that cysteine concentration and therefore should decrease the amount of cysteine stones formed. But with animal protein, it's interesting because if you decrease animal protein, yes, you're going to make less cysteine. I mean, you're taking in less cysteine. Animal origin foods are rich in cysteine and methionine, which apparently then gets metabolized into cysteine. But something else happens besides just not having cysteine. What happens is that if you decrease your animal protein intake, what do you end up replacing that with? Well, often it is fruits and vegetables. And then what happens? Well, you further alkalinize the urine, which helps cysteine become more soluble. Kind of reminds me, if you use clean energy, not only do you get less global warming, but a lot less toxins like mercury and all kinds of bad toxins that cause cancer and lung disease in the environment. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 97% of the Earth scientists are in on a conspiracy to ruin America by giving it cleaner air and water. Okay, probably best to end there so I can get refocused on actually what I meant to talk about this lecture, which was some medications like alpha blockers, hydrochlorothiazide, and somehow I got diverted into the dietary stuff, which I meant to do the next lecture. And so there's probably a little bit more dietary stuff, particularly about oxalate, that we need to talk about, but a lot more on this topic in general. Catch you on the next round. This is Dr. Gil Peratt. Adios, hasta luego.